Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. If you have a creative endeavor and you want to see how the library can help, visit cpl.org. Again, that is cpl.org. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and when you do that, rate and review us. It helps other people find this show, and we always like new listeners. And if you have any feedback or you want to suggest any guests, go ahead and send that my way. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we have Teresa Gasper, the Democratic candidate for the 10th Congressional District in Ohio. So I was not here for this one. This is a, you flew solo on this one, right? This, this is a solo. It's going to be a, a departure, and uh, we're going to really test my interviewing metal and see uh, see how well it turns out. But uh, it's always going to be a student of life and challenge yourself. You no, know, yeah, it's uh, you know it's like learning from your mistakes and whatnot. I, I think it actually turned out pretty well. Uh, Teresa and I had a, a really good discussion. She's she's an interesting candidate in an interesting district. Um, you know, we talked a lot about that. Um, she used to be a Republican and then switched to being a Democrat about uh, close to 10 years ago. I think she said around 2004, 2006 was when she switched over. Uh, we get into that a little bit more, talk about, um, you know, why she decided to switch parties, uh, unlike some people who, you know, do it for kind of, um, you know, possibly more craven political reasons where they switch, you know, two years prior and then run for office or something like that. You know, she did this about 10 years ago. Um, I don't know. It was, it was just an interesting conversation overall. So do you think she has a chance at winning? You know, that's that, that's the big question. Um, and one of the reasons we wanted to have her on is because you look at that district and it looks winnable. And, uh, you know, it's a plus seven district or something like that. It's not, you know, completely unattainable. It's um, uh, less partisan than, say, the uh, 12th district where Danny O'Connor did really well. Um, you look at her as a candidate and um, she she. She's a very good candidate. She's raising money. She's actually outraised Mike Turner, the incumbent down there, for uh, I believe the last two quarters at least. Um, you know, she's out there. She's you know advertising. She's going to these things, but for some reason that race has not gotten the profile of say uh, you know an Aftab Pure Evolve or Steve Shabbat kind of uh, race. And uh, we actually we we did talk about some of that as well. Um, she's she's got an interesting theory on why that is. Um, so she, could she win? Sure, why not in this election environment? I mean, I don't know if I would uh, put put all my money on her winning. I don't know if I'd put all my money on anyone winning, but um, you know, the the district looks like it could be competitive. So, with that, let's uh, go ahead and get to the interview that I did with Teresa Gasper. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely thrilled to be here. So, for those who don't know you, you are the Democratic challenger to in the Ohio tenth, taking on Mike Turner, uh, mm-hmm. basically the Dayton area and some of that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, I'm a small business owner. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood known as South Park. I'm the fourth of five generations on my dad's side of the family to call that neighborhood home at some point. And I knew when I lived there, I wanted to grow up and be a secretary like my mom one day until I realized she was more than a secretary. She actually ran a congressional office for 12 years when I was growing up. Uh, When I left, I knew I wanted to go back someday and work on the houses. And then it wasn't until I left that I realized that my friends had not been allowed to come over to my house after school and on weekends because it was considered a rough neighborhood. And... um, Pretty, I mean, we only moved two miles away, stayed in the same school type thing. But at any rate, I, um, my senior year, both my parents lost their job. In mom's case, Chuck Whalen, the congressman she worked for, decided not to run for a seventh term because he thought things were becoming too partisan and ugly back then. Um, my dad was laid off from Frigidaire, and my opportunity to go to college full-time was out the door. So uh, my part-time um, job at fast food ended up becoming full-time after graduation, Worked my way up to supervisory role there, left and went to work for a construction company as a job site secretary and bookkeeper. And then when that job was over, I went to work at the Marriott Hotel and started in gift shop and reservations and worked my way up to senior catering secretary and was about to go into the um, management program, decided to start a business instead, or I'm sorry, start a family instead. And then when I was five months pregnant with my second child, Um, My husband and I bought a secretarial and telephone answering service because, you know, that's what you do when you're pregnant and have a toddler running around. At any rate, we expanded that to become Dayton's largest executive suite. We catered to defense contractors working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for 14 years. In 99, my husband sold his business to NCR. I sold my business in 2000 to a client. And then after taking a few years off, getting the kids into or out of high school and into college, um, I decided to go back to South Park. And I go in and I buy the houses that have been vacant and boarded up because of the foreclosure crisis. 
and totally renovate them. And for a while we rented them and then ultimately sold them. So I did 16 houses, including the house I grew up in and the last house my grandmother lived in. And what was cool about that is the day we closed on grandma's house or finished it, one of the neighborhood kids walked by. He's a 17-year-old from Flint, Michigan. And he said, Teresa, I really need to thank you because for the first time in my life, I feel like I live in a decent neighborhood. And so I just realized through that work and various housing-related boards that a lot of people in our town are working hard, playing by the rules, and have nothing to show for it. And I just decided I care too much to sit on the sidelines anymore. So here I am. Any chance you're uh, going to get some kind of Property Brothers show going? (laughs) People ask me that all the time. I think that was a problem. Those those few years I was off, I watched too much HGTV and got the bug. (laughs) Do do you like the open space concept? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. Especially when you're starting with Victorian homes and they're all a bunch of little rooms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned that your mom managed Republican Congressman Chuck Whalen's office. Mm -hmm. Uh, You grew up in a Republican household? I did. And um, on your campaign website, you say that uh, she used to hand out the Barbara Whalen cookbooks at the Montgomery County Fairs. Yep. So I believe we might have our first Ohio Matters controversy on our hands here. We had Mike DeWine on the show Uh um, a while ago. And, uh, you know, we talked about the cookbooks there, too. So Mm -hmm. uh, the famed campaign cookbook. So I want to settle this right here. (laughs) Who was the originator of the campaign cookbook here in Ohio? Oh, boy, I don't know. I mean, Barbara started them in the, I say, 60s. I don't know. Have you but seen both the cookbooks? I've not seen the DeWine cookbook. Oh, no. okay. I was going to ask for your opinion on which one was better. <laughs> All I know is my favorite edition was when the Never Fail Fudge almost failed because of a typo. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was a user error, though. Yes. Ah, okay, okay. So yeah. um, so your website also says that you are a diehard University of Dayton Flyers fan, if Go I'm not Flyers. mistaken. I'm just going to ask you about the entire Republican ticket at this point. Uh, I have to ask, what do you think of uh, John Houston's football prowess while he was on the team? <laughs> it was a great year when we won, but it was a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you also, um, we try to have people from uh, different parts of the state on this show mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of get a really good idea of what Ohio is. You know, there's a whole kind of five Ohio's meme and all that stuff. Uh, you know, you're from the Dayton area, and I believe you're also close with Nan Whaley, correct? Yes. Um, can you, you know, talk about your relationship with um, Mayor Whaley just a little bit? Okay. Uh, we we had her on the show previously as well. Oh, I love Nan. I'm a Nan fan, as they call him. Um, I joke that Nan and I grew up together. I just got a head start. But she started on the city commission about the same time I started working in South Park. Um, and she was just very helpful. Um, but she's she's amazing. I mean, for a transplant, she loves the city. I want to say almost as much as I do, but I'm not sure that's fair. I mean, we both love it for different reasons. But she is just amazing at bringing up the people around her. Um, she's very gracious with her time, with her knowledge, with her connections. Um, and she's just, she's a fantastic mayor. She she loves the community. Were you a Republican when you two met? Yes. Yeah. When, uh, how, how has that kind of, um, you know, relationship evolved as, uh, you know, you kind of drifted away from the Republican Party and became yeah. a Democrat? It was actually about the same time, now that I think of it, because I started in South Park in 2006. 2004, I started having some doubts. And then two, by 2008, I had actually voted for McCain in a primary, um, not as a crossover vote. I mean, that was my intention. And then by the the general, I had voted for Obama. Did that have something to do with uh, Sarah Palin, I assume, or anything like that? Or uh, That was part of it. When I saw that selection, I, I pretty much said no. But a lot of it was my work in, in South Park, um, and especially on the, um, the Home Ownership Center of Greater Dayton. I was on an advisory board for them. And what I realized was the rhetoric on Fox News didn't naturally necessarily line up with the reality in the streets. Fox would have you believe that Bill Clinton forced the ba- the banks to loan money to people to buy a house they couldn't afford. And in this case in Dayton, it was people had owned their homes for 30 years. They were paid off. One or both had lost a job, more than likely from GM. One or both lost their insurance, and then somebody had a major health crisis. And they were using the equity in their home to pay their medical bills. And then when the bubble burst, they lost all the equity and lost their homes. Have you considered uh, going back to the party ever? I mean, is there any, like, calling to you considering you grew up being a Republican or grew up in a Republican household? I don't recognize the party anymore. I mean, in 2008, I thought it was starting to go off the rails a little bit. And what it is today, just I I don't recognize it. Um, If somebody tried to describe themselves as a compassionate conservative at this point, I'd I'd have to ask why they even feel the need to use that label. Um, I don't know. I just feel like we've become, you know, we have a two-party system, if you will. I think one looks out for the wealthy and one looks out for everybody else. 
And just with my Catholic upbringing and the, and the teachings of Jesus, I'm not a super religious person, but I believe that you care for the least among us and that we are a brother's keeper, in this case, sisters. <laughs> so let's talk about Dayton just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you think are the, uh, uh, what issues are important in Dayton that maybe aren't important in the rest of the state or maybe that the, other, the rest of the state doesn't exactly realize? Well, you know, we were hard hit from the um, NAFTA, and you know, we're a classic Rust Belt city, which I hate using the word, so I'm like legacy city better. That's but interesting. Why don't you like the term Rust Belt? It's it's derogatory. Um, I mean, I just think it paints such a negative picture, but it's also, unfortunately, sometimes an accurate one. Um, but we, the biggest issues are jobs that pay a decent wage. A lot of people in town used to make 30 bucks an hour at GM, and they're now lucky if they're making 12 or $14 an hour at Fuyao. And that's not because they became lazy. Between automation, globalization, um, trade agreements, the world's changed around them. And the jobs that are replacing them are, are paying at the lower end of the scale. They're still above minimum wage, but it's not enough to put a roof over your head and Make sure that roof isn't leaking and that you've got food on your table and you can pay for your kids' education and, and send them to a good school. So most of the issues I see in Dayton, Ohio, really are the bread and butter issues. People want a good job, good wage, affordable health care, and then they want opportunities for themselves and kids and grandkids. You know, In my case, all three of our kids have, have moved to other states because they didn't find the opportunities they wanted here. So that's, one, that's an incentive for running. I want to rebuild the city and rebuild the area and give them the opportunity so they'll come home, especially since my first grandbaby's on the way. How do you think Dayton needs to be rebuilt? Or how, how, let me ask it this way. How do you think government or private, however, mm-hmm. um, should go about rebuilding Dayton? Honestly, I think most of our issues stem from income inequality. Uh, and I think that's the case around the country. It's not just Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we One of my favorite books is called The Spirit Level, which is kind of an odd name for the book, but it's two researchers from the United Kingdom that went through 30 years of data, and they looked at all the industrialized nations in all 50 states, and they can show that if you look at 14 key economic, or 14 key indicators, things like um, infant mortality rates, drug abuse, poverty, educational outcomes, uh, mental and physical health, various things, if you, or if you narrow the gap between the richest and the poorest, those problems just about go away. They'll, and nothing will ever go away completely. Um, as the gap widens, those problems explode exponentially. So a lot of times people are saying, what are you going to do about the opioid crisis? What are you going to do about jobs? What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? And it's like you're sticking your finger in multiple holes in the dam. The dam is income inequality. It needs to be rebuilt. But how do you rebuild it? Do you, you know, w- what's the path forward on that for you? you, know, how, do you how do you fix income inequality? I think a lot of it is tax policy. Um, I don't think the wealthiest people need the tax breaks that they're getting. I don't think the corporations need the tax breaks that they're getting, especially when you look at how many corporations have made money on technology that was originally funded by the government. Um, so I think, if anything else, their taxes should almost be a royalty payment. You know, if we looked at it that way, it's like, okay, you, you got a head start on this. Yes, you made money. Yes, you've changed the world with it, but don't forget where it came from. But uh, anyway, I think tax policy is a, tax policy is a good um, portion of it. And I think infrastructure, that's what I was going to say. Um, we need to rebuild the infrastructure in this, in this, in this country. I mean, we were talking about today, you know, five of us jump in a car and drive up. Wouldn't it have been nice if Kasich hadn't turned down the transportation money and we had light rail and we could have just jumped on a train and come up and been far more productive and comfortable? Um, but if we're going to do an infrastructure, though, the jobs need to be held by local people. It can't be, you know, giving it to some multinational corporation that's, you know, the money's going to go elsewhere. We've got to find ways to keep money's in, money in the communities and give people the decent jobs and, and honest work. So, I mean, you know, hearing those answers right there has me interested. What, um, can you describe how, have, have it, what, which of your views have changed since you were a Republican? Because, you know, you talk about uh, tax policy and whatnot, and tax mm-hmm. cuts have been a pretty big theme in the Republican Party for really a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Bush tax cuts and whatnot, uh, even going back to, you know, Reagan and all that, although yeah. Reagan did actually increase taxes quite a bit. Um, but, you know, to. he yeah. dropped him too yeah. much. In, 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 the, in the beginning, he did at least, uh, yeah. or in the beginning, he cut taxes. And I'm curious, can you can you just kind of describe the evolution to me? I mean, where, like, on a policy level, what, what got you to where you are now or where you once were to where you are now? Um, 
you know, I'll be honest, in in my 20s and 30s, I wasn't paying a lot of attention because I was running a business and raising my kids. And it wasn't until I say the kids were gone that I had the chance to really start reading and learning more. Um, so I, it was just a matter of I was kind of tuned out for a while. Um, I still hold, I mean, I am a small business owner. So I, I see the value of ca- capitalism. I just don't like predatory capitalism and, and crony capitalism. Um, I used to think there, there was a time that, you know, I, I think you hear this often, unions once served a purpose, but it's, it's not worth it anymore. Um, I think we need unions more than ever because, you know, corporations are just, it's, it's real easy to get into this government or the free market and or business or whatever. And I think it's a matter of balance. Um, one exists to keep the other one from going off the rails. And if corporations were paying their people decent wages and were giving them decent benefits, uh, you know, giving them vacation time and not expecting them to work 80 hours a week, then government would need to get involved. So it's kind of like I used to tell my kids all the time, if you don't want me yelling at you, do what you're supposed to be doing. So I was like, if you don't want the government on your back, do what you're supposed to be doing. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So kind of heading into this election cycle, there's a narrative that uh, the environment that we find ourselves in, the aftermath of the November 2016 election, would mean that we're going to have all these first-time candidates come out of the woodwork and that women are angry about who's in the White House and that kind of stuff. So to some degree, you know, Gasper kind of fits the bill there. So what did she tell you about that? Uh, You know, she really does fit that sort of... uh um, I don't, I don't want to say stereotype, but what we've seen in other districts where these candidates are kind of um, not necessarily coming out of the woodwork, but really, I guess, coming up from the ground is probably the best way to describe it. Um, you know, she's never run for office before. She's been a small business owner. She's been in Dayton for however long and uh, really just kind of decided to run. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about it in the last segment. She kind of had, you know, some pushing from Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, who, you know, is kind of a, a bit of a power broker down there in Dayton politics. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, you know, we talked to, uh, we talked about, uh, w- what it is like being a first time candidate because you don't necessarily have all of those institutional advantages of say someone who's been in office for so long and has a, um, you know, a, a, a fundraising mechanism and has all these, uh, the, you know, the insider help, so to speak. Uh, but it, it, it sort of exemplifies what we've seen in other races around the country. You know, probably the biggest example is the uh, Ocasio-Cortez race over there in New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who sort of came out of nowhere. Um, but she talked about some of her challenges and uh, what it's like being that first-time candidate and not necessarily having all of the uh, institutional advantages of someone who's run for office before and it's not like she's just running for say park board or anything like that i mean she's running for congress like it's a real race um and you know she's trying to make it competitive i've always thought it's it's mostly just if you've never run for office before you just don't know how weird it really is to you know basically beg people for money to drive around to constantly um have events like a full calendar uh day to day and then also just having people pour through your lives just like the scrutiny that you experience so it's just one of those things i don't think you can really learn it except doing it she said it was weird having to ask other people like hey you know i need your your twenty seven hundred dollars whenever i can get it or i guess in her case it was um you know more like two three hundred dollars the dayton area is not exactly the wealthiest in the world or anything like that um so it, it is it, it's going to be some good insight in this segment into what it is like uh, not only running as a first-time candidate but um, a first-time candidate on the Democratic side who doesn't necessarily have the um, – uh, her resume is very kind of on paper. looks like she would be running as a Republican, you know, small business owner, all that kind of stuff. But she's running as a Democrat, so we've we gotten to some of that too. I, I think everybody's really going to enjoy that. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and get to more of the interview with Teresa Gasper. 
want to shift gears for a second and okay. uh, talk about your race. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, you're running against Mike Turner, pretty entrenched in company. He's been there since, um, I believe, 2003 is when he that started. Right, yeah. So why does Dayton and your district seem uh, like it's ripe for a flip to you? I think a lot of people are saying after 16 years, what do we have to show for it? Um, he's kind of hung his peg on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and that's one of my big issues is it can't be either or. Uh, while he's focused exclusively on Wright-Patterson, he's really ignored the rest of the district, and I think that's obvious from the Frontline special the other night. Um, it has to be both and. If we don't have a strong, vibrant, thriving community, Wright-Pat and the other major employers are not going to be able to attract the talent they need. And I know people that are now retired from one of the major hospital networks saying they could not recruit doctors because the spouses didn't want to live in Dayton. NCR left in part because the CEO's spouse didn't want to live in Dayton. Um, So we have to take care of the entire community. It's also a matter of if you're going to represent your community, you need to be there talking to them and listening to them. And I hear stories day in and day out of, I've called, I've sent emails, I've sent faxes, I've requested appointments, and he never sees me. Or worse yet, what I really get upset about is the people that fly to D.C. to meet with him, and then he sends out a staffer for 15 minutes or five minutes. And I just think it's an absolute lack of respect for the time and the money that that person spent you know, to, to travel to D.C. to address their concerns because he won't meet with them in Dayton. So I think part of it is this, the national people are getting kind of tired of they don't trust government anymore they don't trust the system they hate politics uh, they're tired of the incumbents a lot of times i hear we just need change it's time for change 16 years what do we really have to show for it i mean in the 16 years he's been in office i'm not saying it's necessarily his fault but we've lost gm we've lost ncr we've lost and we're losing now teradata um, all that's happened under his watch and i just think that we need to be a little more like I say, if we were addressing the concerns of the overall community, it would be a stronger, more vibrant place, and those those employers wouldn't have to look elsewhere to find the talent they need. But are you seeing something in the race itself that says this district should be competitive? Because uh, Turner has won, frankly, by huge margins basically every time that he's run. I believe his lowest margin was actually in his first race when he still took 58% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say last time around he had, what was it, 64% of the vote. So what are you seeing in that district that says – hey, you know, I I should run for this. This district looks like something I can take. For one thing, he's burned a lot of bridges in 16 years. There's a lot of people in town that are honestly done with them. Um, But I also think it's a matter of we are the least gerrymandered district in the state. People just assume that it's automatically, you know, if if it's Ohio, it's got to be gerrymandered impossibly. We're an R plus four. Danny O'Connor's was an R plus seven, you know, and, and he barely lost it. And if the students had been in session, he probably would have won. Um, and in that case, if three more people per precinct had voted, he would have won. So when people think their vote doesn't matter, I point that out to them. Um, in the past, the Democrats have not always put up the strongest of candidates. Um, and I think that those that were the strongest came at a time when he hadn't had a chance to burn bridges, where he hadn't yet proven himself so people weren't quite ready to you know, you know, throw the bum out, so to speak. Um, you know, Sharon Newhart ran a great race, but she also went dark in June and didn't have the, the ability to really get her name out. Um, and I think that's one thing we're doing different. So your district looks pretty competitive on paper. I've mm-hmm. kind of done a couple analyse- analyses of it. Um, but the DCCC and other outside groups haven't really been paying it much mind. And that's on both mm-hmm. sides, both, you know, uh, conservative and liberal uh, PACs and whatnot. Right. W- why is that? I think, in part, it's the classic Dayton is the afterthought to the three C's in the state. So I think the bigger cities tend to, you know, those candidates are probably getting a little more attention. Um, I'm honestly, con- I, I'm confused why we're not getting more attention. Some of it, I'm sure, is, is fundraising. You know, and we're not a wealthy district. And we're just not. I mean, 34% of the city of Dayton is living in poverty. And that makes up a good portion of the district. So and we've got a strong rural component. So it's not a wealthy district. Uh, we're not going to raise, you know, $2 million, especially because I don't take PAC money. Uh, one of my first endorsements came from N Citizens United. And, you know, so I, I'm not taking the corporate PAC money. Um, but what's interesting is the last reporting cycle, um, I believe Turner had a, around 160-some individual contributions. Now, that's transactions. It's not number of donors. We had almost 32000 So we've got the grassroots enthusiasm. It's just those grassroots don't have a lot of money. 
So Trump won the district by seven points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's only other one other district in the state that was that close as far as uh, going for Trump. Um, and that was the first district down there in Cincinnati. So kind of my, I guess, follow-up, you sort of answered it a second ago, but do you think because, um, you know, Aftab, Puraval, and Steve Shabbat, because that is uh, located in Cincinnati, that that's the one people are kind of looking at as opposed to, say, this one? I think so. Um, and I think Aftab is a very dynamic candidate. Uh, he's got a little more experience, too. I mean, he has run before as, as clerk of courts and, and won in a conservative district. So he is very dynamic, uh, and I think that draws some attention as well. And I'm glad you brought that up because your biography on paper uh, looks like it belongs in the Republican column, frankly. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, you know, you're a small business owner. Mm-hmm. You've never run for office. You know, we've kind of heard that story before. Um, the big difference being that you're a woman and you're a Democrat mm-hmm. who is running. Um, you know, why don't you think more you know, women like you run for office? Because politics is so ugly. You know, I think most of us, you know, it it took me a year to finally make the decision. I did a lot of deliberation, and my biggest concern was the incumbent is known for getting pretty nasty. And it's, do I want to put myself and my family through that? And it's, um, it's a certain point, though, you have to realize this isn't about me. I'm not running because I'm starting a new career. I'm running because I care too much to sit on the sidelines. I'm running because I truly believe our democracy is at stake right now. And I feel like we need to take back the House, not just so Democrats can have it, but so we have some way to put the brakes on a runaway administration. And ideally, we would get the Senate back, too, and then at least we have one functioning branch of government. Um, so this isn't, it's, it's not about me and, and what I want to do next. It's about I care too much about this community and the country. Um, so I may look like a Republican, but I guess I'm still a bleeding heart as, as well underneath it all. What sort of challenges have you faced, um, you know, being a first, not only a first-time candidate, but mm-hmm. a woman running for office as well? I think the biggest challenges, quite honestly, are, are two. One is because there have been so many people that have run against um, Turner and have not been successful. People are afraid to get their hopes up or they're, they're tired of pouring money into that rabbit hole. So there's a little hesitation on that part. Dayton is a very conservative area, a small C conservative. I always joke we accept something new when it's five to ten years old. Um, so it's like once they start seeing polling numbers or once they think I'm close, then they'll jump in. Um, on the other hand, there are people who are quite honestly intimidated by the representative and they're afraid to support me for fear that he is either going to stop taking their phone calls or funding that they're trying to get for their projects uh, will be denied. And I just think it's interesting that people fear the representative. It's not how it's supposed to be. But what about your own personal struggles? I mean, have you faced any being a, you know? I tell you what, if anything, I've learned that I can do a lot more than I can give myself credit for. (laughs) Um, The absolute worst part of it is call time and having to sit on the phones and ask for money all the time because I'm not, I don't like to ask for help in general, let alone to ask for money. Uh, But at the same standpoint, I get to have some amazing conversations with people one-on-one. And I get to find out, you know, what exactly their their issues are. And it's whether I'm talking to somebody locally or out of state. I like to see how it compares. Because sometimes I'll call into districts that are R plus 32 or even a D plus 40. And, you know, and obviously in the Democratic districts, they feel like they have a voice. And those Republican ones, they don't. And so if I know we're on the same page, I can tell them, hey, look, I may not be in your district, but I can still represent you when I consider the country first. So... You know, Democrats have often called themselves the party of women, you know, um, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case here in Ohio. If you look at just the makeup of the congressional delegation, there's only four women who are serving in office. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, why do you think, um, I, let me ask it this way, do you think the Democratic Party has done a good enough job in um, recruiting women to want run or propping up women candidates? Um, I don't know that I would blame it on the party, to be honest. Um, I do think it's a matter of we kind of go about our lives taking care of everybody else, taking care of things. And like I say, because it's so so nasty and toxic, a lot of people are like, I just don't need this. I really don't. But then we had this election in 16, and we see the absolute lack of respect for women um, from this president and from others, you know, either in the public eye or whatever. And it's kind of like, oh, hell no. Hell no. So, I mean, I joke all the time about, you know, women are used to going in and cleaning up a mess that somebody else created. And I really feel like that's what's going on now. I think, and I don't mean this um, as a judgment. 
or anything derogatory, but I do think men tend to run for power and for ambition, and women tend to run to get things done. And I think what you see, like right now, of our 16 representatives or 16 um, challengers, or the 16 people running for office as congressional, um, 10 are women on a Democratic side, and three of those are incumbents. So seven of us are newcomers. And what I get excited about is there's over 300 women running nationwide of both parties. And I really feel like we think differently. And we, we're more collaborative, more cooperative. We don't care who gets credit. It's like, let's just get this done. Um, so I really think if we can change out a lot of the people, you can change the culture. And if you change the culture, you can change the system. And ultimately, it's a system that's broken. I mean, if, you know, my number one issue nationally is if we don't get money out of, out of um, politics, nothing else is going to change. You know, there's just too many special interests and too many people beholden to them. Um, that's what we have to change. Um, you know, should Democrats look to recruit more uh, women small business owners to run for office? It doesn't, you know, I can't name, frankly, too many women small business owners who are, mm-hmm. you know, holding office. Yeah. Is, is there an untapped pool of talent there? Oh, probably. I mean, <laughs> it would seem <laughs> like there is. Um, sometimes I'm not sure if it, it's the job description as much as it's the heart and the soul. You know, like I say, it's, I feel a very strong need to protect our democracy. I feel a very strong need to protect my community. Um, parts of it are doing very well. Parts of it are very you know, much struggling. So I, like I say, I don't think it's so much about the Democrats. Because, for example, Emily's List, they normally have to go out and recruit um, 700 women candidates. This year they had over 30,000 approach them. And one statistic I hear often, too, is, and I think Emily's List uses this, um, I think they said the, the average woman has to be asked seven times to run for office, and the average man just wakes up one morning and decides, hey, I think I'm going to run for office. You know, it's like one time he's asked. Um, they also say that women tend to feel like they need to be at least 80% proficient in the topic before they will go for promotion or run for office or whatever that next step is. And I know I'll get in trouble for saying this, but the, the other side of that statistic is men feel like they need to know about 20% and they'll go for it. Um, <laughs> I didn't make this stuff up. This is, <laughs> like I say, I'm not slamming my male friends. Um, but I really do think it's a matter of, we tend to focus, like I say, focus on other things. And it just took a giant orange bear to <laughs> kind of poke us instead of us poking it. So let me ask this, just, you know, a little deeper even, um, you know, take Republican Democrat out of it. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what can be done or what should be done to, you know, encourage more women to run for office or get them to run for office? I like to quote Marianne Williamson. She's a spiritual author, best-selling author. Um, and she talks about women avoid politics and, and especially in, within the spiritual community or the metaphysical community that people tend to avoid politics because again, it's, na- it's nasty, it's to- toxic, it's negative. And she says, maybe it's because we're not bringing our love and light to the arena. I mean, really, truly, the only thing that overcomes darkness is light. And so maybe if we can start, you know, if I hope this is a wave year. Everybody think it's, thinks it's a blue wave. I think it's a feminine wave. And I think if we can get more women in there and start changing that culture, you know, just like those that came before us, we're standing on their shoulders. You know, I'm happy, you know, if I can clear a path to make it easier for somebody to stand on my shoulders later. So you mentioned the blue wave, and I'm mm-hmm. curious, do you, uh, do, you, do you see a blue wave coming to Ohio? You know, in the primary, we didn't think so. Um, but after Danny O'Connor's race, we're very energized and very excited. Uh, he, like I say, in a, a district that Trump took by 11, and I forget, T-Berry usually won by, what, 30 points or something. Right around. I and mean, that was a heck of a swing. Uh, so I think that, you know, that has really encouraged a lot of us. And I know it's encouraged my supporters because they see it within reach now. It's like, oh, if he's an R plus seven, you're only an R plus four. We can do this. I'm like, I've been telling you that all along. <laughs> so. um, how, how do you transfer, um, you know, given that Ohio is so different and mm-hmm. you look at the politics and there's, you know, very regional politics in the state. How do you um, how do you learn from a district like Danny O'Connor's and uh, take it to a place like Dayton, which, um, you know, there are some similarities to every mm-hmm. district in the state, but there's also a lot that's different there. Well, quite honestly, I've been so focused on my own district um, that I haven't compared it so much to the other ones. Um, but like I say, just in talking to people, most of the concerns are still the same. And it, it does come back to those bread and butter issues. I will say a lot of people are terrified by the Trump administration. 
that is one of the first question or responses to my question I get, which is normally, how are you feeling about the country in general or Congress in particular? And then sometimes it's like, you know, spies like us with your, you know, your face blown back as people are like, ah. um, but it's, I don't think there's that many differences really. I mean, I, I find like if I call obviously the, the left coast, California, you get a lot more about the environment here. It's more healthcare. Um, education comes up a lot, but mostly people were just saying that, you know, they're, they're tired of struggling. So besides kind of coming to grips with what it's like running for office the first time, um, you know, Gasper also probably has a perspective of just kind of uh, basically an outsider's view of what the Democratic Party is like. You know, she's somebody who wasn't really steeped in it. Like if somebody like, for example, Nan Whaley were to run, you know, she's been living it for a while. But Teresa Gasper really is just an outsider. So what was her take on kind of the state of the Democratic Party? Well, she really did get into sort of Democratic politics at I, I think it's fair to say it, pretty much the low point of democratic politics, not, not even necessarily just in Ohio, but kind of nationwide, where they've had, you know, defeat after defeat and just lost, you know, all these seats and have not been competitive in what seems like years, say, for basically Barack Obama and I guess in this state, Sherrod Brown. And, um, you know, she she had some interesting perspective on that, um, you know, not only as someone who's not kind of plugged in with the uh, quote unquote party elite. But as someone who you know used to be on the other side of the aisle, um, she had some uh, she had some keen insight into what she thinks like where she thinks the Democratic Party should go, and uh, you know I, I think you know we talk about that with a lot of the candidates who come on the show, the Democratic candidates like where you know they're kind of in this weird nebulous place. Where yeah, like they, the left wing versus the centrist yeah. kind of approach. And uh, talking to her about you know where she sees the party going or what she thinks the party needs to do is it, it was just interesting because you know we get so many people who've been in office for so long or are you surprised that healthcare has so been long, kind whatever. of a big issue and uh, going into this coming, election i think everybody um, kind of not only from the outside the economy in, but really from and the even other democrats side. were yeah. basically saying um, you know, um, talking about you know, some of that, we, like, we haven't focused on the economy. We need to focus and, uh, on the economy, but it's really shifted uh, to kind of getting the like Democratic that. Party. Has that surprised you at all? Successful? Not really. The, I'm actually surprised um, that you know, I'm not hearing about health care more. Know, the early Barack Obama um, but it, it did surprise me too when I was first that, thinking of running. How of it's become a bridge issue. I'm amazed at how many Republicans I talk to that are in favor of like a Medicare for all. But health care touches everybody. You know, that's not drawn by political lines. How we respond to it may be, but when you get sick, you're sick, and you want your insurance that you've been paying thousands of dollars for to cover whatever treatment you need. And, yeah, you know, I saw my, my brother passed away six months ago of lung cancer. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, and my sister is a business systems analyst, and she's still trying to go through all of his medical records and compare, you know, he was originally on COBRA, because he had taken an early out. So he had COPRA, and then he went to Medicare, and then he, so his primary became a secondary, and then you had hospice care. And it was, I mean, she spent probably 40 hours a week for weeks. Instead of grieving the loss of her brother, she's trying to figure out this insurance mess. And he was trying to keep up with it as best as he could. We know he's overpaid. We just haven't been able to figure out how much and how much, you know, his, his estate should be getting back, if they'll give any of it back. And that impacts everybody. I mean, everybody's got a story, something like that. Maybe they don't have the sister that analyzes everything. Um, and just, I think people are very scared. You know, it, they're, a lot of times they're one paycheck away or one you know, car repair away from losing it all. You throw on a medical crisis and they don't know how they're going to do it. And like I say, that's how we had such a wave of foreclosures in Dayton was because people had medical crises and they couldn't pay for their bills. We should not go bankrupt in this country because of medical bills. I mean, that's ludicrous. How can we, how do we bill ourselves as the, you know, the shining city on the hill if we're letting 
millions of people die because they don't have access to the care they need. And then you have the argument of, well, they can go to the emergency room. Well, yeah, for an emergency, but then as soon as you're past the emergency, they send you home. You can't go to the emergency room to get chemotherapy treatment. You can't go to the emergency room for a surgery that you need. Um, and I just think that, I don't know, that's another reason why I left the Republican Party. I think the, a lot of that compassion is gone. You know, and one issue that's really picked up steam with Democrats regarding health care is Medicare for all. I don't know. Have mm-hmm. you taken a stand on that yet? I think it's something that we really need to work for. Um, I, I think first and foremost, we have the Affordable Care Act, and it was never perfect. It was never designed to be the, you know, the end-all, be-all. It was supposed to be a work in progress. Um, but we're dismantling the things that people care most about, the, you know, the pre-existing conditions and being able to cover their kids till they're 26 and, you know, I mean, on and on and on. So let's, let's put in place what we know worked, even if it only worked for a short time. And let's figure out how to, you know, tweak and improve and fix the things that didn't work. And then I think we can move to it. And, and here's, I, this is where my, my business brain comes in. Small businesses have a horrible time competing with large corporations when it comes to benefits packages. Large corporations are constantly trying to push every expense they can off the book to improve their profits. My husband counsels entrepreneurs, and one of the first questions he asks them is, um, do you have a family, and will you lose your insurance if you quit your day job? If they say yes, he says, then don't do it. So you're stifling innovation. And then you have people that feel trapped at a job that they hate because they can't leave because they need the insurance because they they have a pre-existing condition or their their spouse is ill or whatever. So why is any business spending its time on benefits? You know, especially small businesses, we're placing such a burden on them, you know, to, to have to hire, you know, doctor's offices that have a whole back office operation just trying to deal with insurance claims rather than practicing medicine. So I just think from a business standpoint, it makes sense. Let's move toward that single payer and or Medicare for all. It doesn't have to be done purely public. It can be private. Germany uses a, a system where they still use for-profit insurers, but their, their incentives are different. Their incentive is based on the number of happy, qualified, or satisfied clients they have, subscribers rather than profits. So they battle over who can provide the best customer service. Their people stay on the same program 20 or 30 years, and then they can focus on preventative care rather than reactive care. Are you surprised at the rate that, um, you know, Medicare for all or single payer has become kind of a real discussion within the Democratic Party? You know, I'm thinking even 10 years ago, and it was, um, you know, almost a slur, really, when you Mm -hmm. think about it. And, um, you know, especially given, you know, you're growing up and being in the Republican Party, how it's just completely shifted, it mm-hmm. seems, in the Democratic Party um, and really gone, become kind of a mainstream argument. Uh, are, so are you surprised by that shift? I am, but I'm not. When you look at the population aging, yeah, I'm 57, my husband's 62, and we don't qualify for Medicare, and insurance doesn't want us. So we pay, I don't know, $1,500 a month, and we have $10,000 deductible. What are we paying for? We're both healthy. But when we do have to go, more often than not, our deductible isn't covered. Um, so I think a lot of people are finding themselves in that. They're finding themselves in the individual market. And I think some of that may come into the fact of, um, you know, we've become this contract or gig employment. You know, people are, are stitching together a bunch of freelance jobs or they're working part-time for several companies because the company doesn't want to pay their insurance. And so they're finding themselves in the individual market. And that's not a happy place to be. So I think it's just a matter of people's lives. It's, it's touching them more and more. And again, I think that's why it's become a bridge issue because that doesn't impact just Democrats. It's Republicans as well. So the other issue that's kind of, um, I don't want to say consumed the Democratic Party or anything like that, but it's been an issue in basically every race that's come up, at least in the special elections, is um, Nancy Pelosi and the future of leadership there. Um, yeah. Have you taken a stance on whether you'd support Nancy Pelosi for leader or not? In, number one, thank you for putting me there to make that decision. Uh, number two, I would say that just like business, you need a succession plan. She's done an amazing job. And if she hadn't done an amazing job, the, the Republicans wouldn't demonize her like they do. Um, but in a business, if you don't have that succession plan, if the people stay at the top too long, the middle is going to say, there's no opportunity for me here. I'm going to move on. And then you have a brain drain. So I think it makes sense for our government as well. Um, I think she's done a heck of a job, but I think it's time for some new leadership. I mean, so you wouldn't vote for her? I'd have to wait and see what the choices are, but 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You um, so you brought Sherry Bustos into campaign for you, if I'm not mistaken, right? I love Sherry. So fun fact about that: Sherry Bustos was actually my parents' congressman, uh, oh, congresswoman right. back in uh, Illinois, and um, you know she's kind of become this like. Uh, the whisperer to the Midwest for the Democratic Party, you know, winning mm-hmm. in uh, kind of the Trump country, the the yeah. old manufacturing hubs and whatnot. Um, you know, what, what do you think she has to teach the party um, or has she taught the party anything? I guess let's start there. I think she's a real rock star in the Democratic Party. And I think a lot of people are listening to her. Um, and, she, and she offered to come in. I didn't ask. Um, but I just I she is a force to be reckoned with. I can't wait to serve with her. Um, but I think that she's done a good job of telling people, look, we've got to get off these, what bathroom people are using or, you know, so many of the identity issues and focus on what matters to people. And again, it comes back to people want a good job and good wages and affordable health care and they want a solid roof over their head. Um, and I think that, you know, yeah, there is a difference between the East and the West Coast um, and, and the rest of the country. And there's differences between, you know, Northeast and Southwest and Southeast and Northwest. I mean, there's so many differences, but I think she's got it right. Uh, we've just been getting carried away with the, the wrong stuff. We got to get past the red meat and get into the, the like I say, the real meat and potatoes that matter to people. You know, and uh, I, I guess you'd kind of call her uh, Senate counterpart of sorts, the uh, sort of Midwest whispers kind of Sherrod Brown, who's in the state running as well. Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, do, you know, wh- what do you take from kind of his campaign and try to apply to yours? He's, you know, at the top of the ticket. Um, yeah. He actually won't be at the top of the ballot, but he's kind of considered at the top of the ticket. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering, what does someone who is in your position who, um, you know, there there are these two high-profile statewide races, not to mention the rest of the statewide races, um, what do you look to in those campaigns to try to transfer to yours and kind of, you know, vice versa? What do you try to do for their campaign? The thing about Sherrod Brown is he is a true champion of the middle class, and he's shown that through his record over and over and over again. Um, he gets Ohioans. He gets um, he gets the Midwest. He knows what's important. I don't agree with him on everything, but I agree with him on most things. And I know I agree with him with a lot more than I would with Renacy. Um, but he's he's walked the walk, and I think he's doing a phenomenal job just being authentic and true. And I think that's what, you know, people have asked me for years to run for office. I'm like, why? I don't understand why people get excited about me. And I finally figured out it's my authenticity. I'm not the polished professional politician. I'm, you know, small business owner, grew up in East Dayton. I can't believe I'm running for Congress and that I may meet President Obama tonight. This is not the world I grew up in. Um, But it's the world I'm, I'm I'm at and I just, I embrace it. And I want others to embrace it as well. So you mentioned we're recording this, um, you know, before President Obama visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode is obviously going to run after, um, yeah. you know, his visit here. Um, you know, given that more people voted for Trump in 2016 than voted for Obama in either 2008 or 2012, mm-hmm. and Trump won by a wider margin, you know, does President Obama have any staying power in this state? I mean, is he still the figure that he was in 2008 in Ohio and even 2012 in Ohio? I think in many ways people revere him more than ever just from the contrast in personalities between the president or the present occupant of the Oval Office. Um, I think so many of us miss that grace and dignity and elegance um, and that the thoughtful consideration to things. I know some people complained before that he took too long to make decisions. He deliberated too much. I'd take that any day to this knee-jerk reaction to things. Um, But what's interesting is, like in in the Ohio 10th, people tend to vote for the the person rather than the party. So in a year that Obama, 2012, barely lost our district, Sherrod Brown won, two Democrats. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why Trump won um, and I don't think it's a comparison to Obama so much. It must, in some cases, it might be a reaction to Obama, but I don't think it's a comparison to him. I'm glad he's back. I'm really glad he's back. So, you know, we ask a lot of institutional Democrats on this show, um, you know, questions about the party. Um, you know, you, I, I think it's kind of safe to not call you an institutional Democrat. You've never run for office before. Right. I don't know how active you were in the party before this, but... Um, you know, what What does the party need to do in 2018 to be successful? They've got a pretty abysmal success rate in the state really over the past, you know, like, you know, 20 years when you really look at it. Yeah. So what do they need to do to, um, you know, sort of turn things around? 
I think part of it is messaging. Republicans are very good at it. You know, they come up with, you know, quick little one or two words. You know, we're talking about the importance of meeting with your doctor to discuss your end of life, you know, decisions. You know, and they're like, death panels. You know, they just come up with a real quick rock throw from, you know, from whatever sideline. So I think part of it is messaging. Um, and I think part of that comes from when you're introducing new ideas, you have to take time to explain them. You can't just throw out a, a one or two word and, and have people understand what's going on. I think part of it, too, and this is where I struggle as a new candidate, I think there's too much emphasis on money. And I think that's true in the party and the process as well as our society in general. Everything is based on how much money you produce for yourself or someone else. And so you can be an excellent candidate and a lousy fundraiser and not win. You can be a, an excellent fundraiser and a lousy candidate and still win. So I would like to see really more emphasis, less emphasis on money. Um, I don't think it's the amount of, I mean, $10 million on Danny O'Connor's race for a job that pays 174000 We've lost our, our priorities there. So I, the two things for me are messaging and money. So what should the Democrats do about that? I think we need to overturn or the uh, Citizens United. Well, as far as it goes, yeah. as far as it goes toward like winning 2018 what what sort of messaging uh you know changes do they need to do i think they need to follow sherry busto's lead to be honest um i like i say i think we need to get past the red meat and get to the meat and potatoes um that would be my first suggestion i don't know i haven't thought about too much i like i say i tend to focus more on what is it the people of the ohio 10th need and how can I facilitate what it is that they need? What I get really excited about is all, I mean, the candidates have almost become my, my second family. I spend more time with candidates than I do with, with my, my own family sometime. Um, but there's so many good people running at the, the local, county, state, and federal level. And I, we're all bound. I, tell, I, I walk around with my Democratic slate card all the time. And I said, don't vote for these people because they're Democrats. Vote for them because they're bound by a love of our community, our love of our state, and the love of our country and more than ever a love of our democracy. And I really think when you vote for people because they care, you can't go wrong. All right, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. It's a great opportunity. Okay.